0: Well, 1 Corinthians 12, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, a chapter that's all about spiritual gifts. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but our real focus is on verses 4 to 12. Um, But I'll be mentioning kind of offhand some things um, from other parts of the chapter, so I did want to read it all. Uh, But when we get to verses 4 to 12, you can kind of zero in. That'll be our our focus in just a little bit, uh, even though uh, we won't necessarily be going through it in detail like we would normally do, Um, but speaking about... uh, Church life this morning in our ongoing series of biblical manhood and womanhood. So let's read together what God's holy and Aaron and inspired word says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ." then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. We thank God for his word and ask him uh, this morning to help us apply its truth to our hearts. Well, we've been asking sort of one question as we've developed our theology of biblical masculinity and femininity, manhood and womanhood, and that is, is it possible for men and women to be equal and yet distinct? And the debates about feminism, men's and women's roles in the family, in the church, they all really sort of boil down to that question. Because our culture proclaims an equality between the sexes, and yet to speak of the differences between men and women beyond simple biology, but even now to speak of even simple biology, has become quite taboo, it's become off-limits and politically incorrect. For this generation, equality of essence can only be true, says our world, if we eliminate any and all distinctions between men and women and how they live and how they behave. And this is the approach that even some Christians, unfortunately, I think, have taken to the way that men and women participate in the life of church. For men and women to be truly equal, this worldview says, well then, they must all do the same things. And I hope what we've been learning as we've worked through this series is that from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible actually holds out a vision of gender that includes both total equality and beautiful intentionally designed distinctions, that men and women are equal, but yet they are not interchangeable with one another. Now, we saw that in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, back when we learned that men and women were both created in God's image. And so as Human beings created in the image of God, men and women, are equal in glory, honor, value, dignity, and worth. Absolutely no distinction between them in terms of their creaturely relationship to God. And when it comes to our standing before God in Christ, Galatians 3 is really clear when it tells us that we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul, when writing to the Galatians, is highlighting this wonderful fact that all those who have a relationship with Christ through faith have an equal status before God that doesn't depend on our ethnicity, doesn't depend on our background. Slave and free in that context, could today we could apply that and say it doesn't depend on our socioeconomic status. And it also doesn't depend upon our our gender, that we are all equal and stand before God in the same way, either condemned in Adam or redeemed and saved if we trust in Jesus Christ. So in Christ, there is not only equal in terms of our creation and our, and our creaturely relationship before God, but where there is also total equality and absolutely no sense of inferiority or superiority in terms of race or gender, but there's total equality in those cases, But having said and admitting and and really defending, wanting to defend those things, that doesn't mean that God eradicates our genders or our ethnicities or our personalities when we become Christians. He doesn't get rid of those things. In fact, those things are better expressions, more full expressions of our our God and, and us bearing His image than they are before we became saved. We are equal in standing before him, but we're still distinct in who he has made us to be. In Genesis 2, we learn that, generally speaking, God has given men dispositions to exercise responsibility by providing for and protecting others. And this has various ways that it plays out that we talked about. We saw that women are created with, again, generally speaking, with dispositions to nurture life and to help others flourish. And that gets applied in various situations. And for the last couple weeks, we've spent time thinking about how those distinct dispositions and roles um, become formalized into clear roles for men and women in marriage and family relationships, according to passages like Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. We also saw how single people can express their masculinity and femininity as individuals within the larger context of church and family life. Well, this morning we want to move from the the relationship of marriage and family, which the Bible has a lot to speak about, and consider how our distinct masculinity and femininity plays out in the life of the local church. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, there are a few clearly delineated boundaries in the roles of men and women within a congregation, just as there are in marriage. And those are really important, and so we're going to spend a whole uh, sermon on those but this morning I really wanted to consider first the broad and varied ways that men and women are called, both called to um, and, and are equipped by God to participate in the work of the gospel, the work of ministry in the local church, and how most of the things that the Bible talks about, again, are things that both men and women do. And because there's a plain fact here that I think that gets often overlooked in this discussion, and that is that scripture not just allows but actually, expects men and women to participate in the vast majority of church ministry and practices together, doing these things together. And so, our text here in one Corinthians twelve talks about, if you if you look back at verses four and following, that there are a variety of gifts that God has given to the people of God, but the same Spirit again. And notice here, even this same message carries over of the same spirit is at work in each of our lives if we're believers, and yet he doesn't give us all the same gifts. So even there we see that there is equality because we have the same spirit. You know, women or people who are poorer, or don't get like a second class act of God in their hearts. No, all people, when they come to faith in Christ, are given the same Spirit of God, and yet he apportions different gifts based on his own wisdom. Different manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit are given to the people of God. Now, what do we learn here about that? Well, that God gives varieties of gifts to his church, and they're not a portion on the basis of gender or ethnicity. It wasn't like in their first early church that the, that the Jewish people, if you were ethnically Jewish and became a believer, uh, that you got special gifts that the Gentiles didn't get. Or if you were men, or if you were um, uh, a wealthy person, you got better gifts than the, the slave who became a believer. Now, this, none of these distinctions existed. That men and women alike, from various ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds, are gifted greatly by God for the purpose of what verse 7 calls the common good, what we might call the building up of the body together. It's for the common good of the people of God. All these gifts. And so on the whole, we have to say that men are edified by both men and women, just like women are are edified by both men and women, all in the church. Which means that no one is unimportant. No one is irrelevant in the life of the church. With respect to the roles that men and women are given, we always remember that that God designs his body just as he wants it. He is infinitely wise. And he has given each of us our gender and our spiritual gifts. And we have to recognize his sovereignty in these areas. And recognizing that sovereignty is really important. This is why the sovereignty of God in all things really is one of the bedrock Foundational doctrines that we have to understand, because recognizing God's sovereignty even in these things helps us guard our hearts against things like jealousy and discontentment. Right? Think about it. I could want to be a professional NBA player and play with the Jazz after their two amazing victories at the opening of the season. Maybe the only two games that we win all year, but boy, we beat the Nuggets and the T Wolves, and that made me happy. Okay, and they were fun to watch. And I could really want to be like that. And if I didn't recognize God's sovereignty, I could be discontent in saying, God, you did not give me the height or the skill needed to play in the NBA. And there are many people who do uh, sort of are bitter against God for not giving them uh, the ability, just the physical ability, to do something that they wish to do. But actually that would be discontent. That would be a a, a jealousy that is not befitting of a believer who believes in God's sovereignty. That God created me who I'm created to be. And instead of being jealous and discontented at wanting something that God did not provide for me. That what I ought to do is lean into those areas that God created me to be. Look for those gifts and talents that God has given to me. And then seek to use those for the building up of the body of Christ. For the common good. And so sometimes that's the case. And that's the case, you know, whether we're tall or short. You know, if God made you five foot two, He probably didn't make you to be an NBA player, right? Uh, if God made you seven foot four, well, then that may be a, a career option to look at. But the same can be said of our genders. It's not a mistake that God made you a man or a woman. It's not a mistake what uh, ethnicity that you were born into. You should be proud of those things, your heritage, your ethnicities, as long as in our our um, accepting of who we are we don't use that as a way to be jealous or discontent against others that God has created differently. That's usually where it goes wrong. And so our summary, if we're going to have a summary of these things, kind of our thesis statement for understanding how this works in the life of the church, is that men and women are called, are both called, to serve the church in almost all capacities equally except for the area of leading and teaching in the church which God's word assigns exclusively to men. And that's what we'll deal with in a couple of weeks. We'll focus on those passages that spell out that principle of male leadership in the church. But this morning we want to explore a variety of practical ways in which both men, women and men, using the various gifts that the same Spirit of God has given to us, these varied gifts, may serve the church. And again, what I want to stress here is that whatever you do to serve the body of Christ, even if it's something that can be done by both genders, note that you will do that as a man or a woman. You don't operate as some genderless human being. If you're a woman, whatever your gifts, however you serve, you've been designed by God to cultivate life and help others flourish. And so as women serve in the church, generally speaking, they will do so in a more feminine, motherly, sisterly way. As they nurture, enrich, care for, beautify, foster relationships, help others to listen and understand and fill the church with life. If you're a man, well, you've been designed by God to provide for others, to protect them, and to feel a responsibility for others' well-being. And so as men serve in the church, again, generally speaking, whatever their gifts and whatever areas that they serve in, they will do so with a more masculine, fatherly, and brotherly manner. Strengthening, guarding the weak, standing up for what is right, working sacrificially, taking initiative to help others uh, be spiritually better. And so there's lots of overlap here, and I'm speaking in very broad terms. And the point is, be who you are, honor the Lord, and build up the body of Christ using the gifts that God has given you, as a man or as a woman. But you you can lean into those things and not run away from them. The the same is true, by the way, of any type of leadership responsibility. Any of you who have done any leadership training know that there's actually not one type of person that makes a good manager. There are lots of different types of managers. There are more emotive managers, there are more structured managers, but any personality type, any uh, inclination, any disposition can be both good or bad in the workplace. It's how you use who you are in in, in leading others, in serving others that matters. So, honor the Lord and build up the body of Christ regardless of who you are. So what are some of the various ways that we do this? I think I've listed like seven categories of ways that both men and women can build up the body of Christ. And let me just mention these. Let's walk through them. These are ways in which this, the very gifts of the Holy Spirit that he has given to the church can minister as one body with many members to one another. And number one, if, if you, you almost want to like underline bold circle number one, because really number one is the only one. And the others are kind of subsets of number one, okay? And number one is by participating in the public gathering of the church. This is, uh, I hope this doesn't count, you count—you uh, don't count this as strange, but a lot of people in the world would when I say this. That the single most important moments in the life of the church are what we're doing right now. Gathering together publicly around God's word. And the most significant ministry That not just the pastor or a worship leader can do, but the most significant ministry that you will ever do in the life of the body of Christ is the ministry of your physical presence with other believers in the corporate gathering and the worship of the church. The ministry of your presence. See, a lot of people think there's this misconception that the more you're actively doing, that must be more important. And so the more Bible studies you attend or lead, the more workdays that you come to and participate in, the more small groups that you're involved in, the more various ministries outside of Sunday morning, that that really shows uh, who is involved in the life of the church. And all those things are great and all those things are important, but notice what, what, is the, what, is, what does the writer of Hebrews say not to forsake? He specifically says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. There is a priority on getting together and fellowshipping together under the preaching of Scripture. Where we sing not just to God, but in the New Testament, Paul exhorts us to admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Encourage one another through those things. We're singing yes to God, but also in our singing, we're singing to one another. We're telling each other, remember these things. We sang this morning about the holiness of God. We stand and lift up our hands. The glory of the Lord is our strength. We're saying that yes to God, but not to God in the sense of we're reminding God of anything, but we're together corporately reminding ourselves. We're reminding each other. We're saying, hey, believer, to my left, to my right, in front of me, behind me, remember that it's the glory of the Lord that's our strength. And I sing this for his glory, but I also sing it for you to remember. To remember the holiness of God. That God is holy, 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 thrice holy, ultimately holy, repeatedly holy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian of holiness is who we worship. And we say this to one another. We sing not to God, not just to God, but also to each other. We pray together. We pray even when, whether it's one person praying like Nevin did for us in just a minute ago, or whether it's when we're corporately praying the Lord's Prayer, we're praying together for one another. To God, but yes, together. We hear Scripture read, and when we hear Scripture read, I hope you don't, you're not just sitting back passively and saying, fire words at me, those of you who stand at the platform and read. But when we read Scripture, you're reading along with us. You're thinking about those words that are being read in Scripture. You are internally amening verses of Scripture. We witness baptisms together. We eat the Lord's Supper together. The spiritual good we receive from the public gathering doesn't just come from a preacher or a worship leader, but it comes from one another within the body of Christ as we minister the word to each other and love one another in various ways in the assembled gathering of the church. Not very many times during the week is our whole church together. And therefore, the most important thing That you can do in the life of any church, in the life of our church, is to be here, to regularly be here, and participate with us together. To love one another, and this is where relationships are fostered that then work themselves out into small groups and to other ministries. But this is this is the uh, the place where we come together to meet with the Lord and to meet with one another. And meeting together isn't just part of how we how we edify one another; it's a key part of our witness to the world. Because together as the corporate body of Christ, we do something the world cannot possibly explain. We come together as people from different ethnicities, people of different cultures, people with different socioeconomic backgrounds or realities, people with different interests, people with different hobbies, and yes, people of different genders, and we unite around and in a common Savior, Jesus Christ. We say, yes, there's a lot that could divide us. There's a lot that even if we got into political discussions and those types of things, we might argue about. But we come here to put our differences aside and say, despite our earthly differences, the things that might separate us on earth, we come together to say we come to worship and glorify Jesus Christ our Savior. That is what what the gathered church does. Together we do what no one-to-one discipling meeting can do, what no small group Bible study men's or women's event. In the words of Paul in Ephesians 3, that it is through the local church that we bring to light for everyone what is the plain mystery hidden for the ages, the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages, in God who created all things, so that through the church, Paul says, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So elders and preachers, deacons, worship leaders, we cannot do this alone. Men and women cannot do this alone. Old, young cannot do this alone. But redeemed men and women of various ages and various backgrounds who God has knit together in Jesus Christ, that is who together can do this. And so if if we leave learning nothing else this morning, I pray that we learn leave learning the absolute priority and importance of coming together. And that as hard as it is some weeks, the most important thing you will do in the life of our church is simply finding your way here. And I know some weeks it's tough. Some weeks you come in dragging. And, and clearly, you know, there are times when you're like, you know, hocking up a lung. That we prefer you to stay at home. <laughs> but you're, you're sovereignly, uh, and God's providentially has made it where you aren't able to be here. Nothing wrong with going on vacations and those types of things. But just as a priority, your weekly priority in the life of the church is to the gathering, to the gathered church. Now, how do men and women contribute to that gathered church in va- various services, in various ways? Well, the first thing I mentioned, or the second, number two, but the 1st subpoint, however you're listing these, just write your own outline, It's going me be easier, <laughs> is through, I, I just grouped these together, reading, praying, and prophesying. The reading of God's word is, of course, one of the most basic elements in our corporate gathering, and Nevin and I both make it a priority to read a lot of scripture in church. Um, you know, it's, it's, I've been to church services, especially on, you know, vacations or different things where you go visit someplace, and man, it's like... You're lucky if they read, like, a couple verses of the Bible. Well, where does our instruction come from? It comes from the Scriptures, and so we make it a priority to read lots of the Bible in our corporate gatherings, to read all different parts of the Bible, to, to not just to teach it, but to read it out loud, the public reading of Scripture. It's a privilege. And God can equip both men and women to partake in these things in the life of the church, in various venues. And um, it's not inappropriate to have women read out Scripture. We'll talk about that in, in, more in a little bit, but also to pray publicly. We, we value the prayers of, of women. You know, 1 Corinthians 11, the chapter before our text this morning, said, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife or every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And, and don't worry, we'll, I'm going to attempt to talk about head coverings in, in a couple weeks. But for now, simply notice that Paul assumes that women pray and prophesy in the general activity of the church's gathering. And as prayer is perhaps the most basic ministry in a church's life together, it's no surprise that both men and women are called to contribute to public prayer life. And so uh, we sit together and we pray together. In Sunday school, we pray together. And and we can pray together informally. And it's um, one of the things that the the worship team always does is pray after they uh, finish leading, uh, doing their practice. And and men and women pray out loud in, in both of those situations. So the question may often come, "Okay, Kenny, you say we desire women to pray publicly and read Scripture publicly. So the question might be asked, why don't why don't we normally or usually have women uh, read Scripture or pray from the platform from the pulpit on Sunday mornings? Well, that's because largely our corporate prayers and our and our reading of Scripture, even as Nevin demonstrated for us this morning. Um, especially in our pastoral prayers and our public reading of Scripture, they begin to verge in this particular service, they verge on the border of authoritative teaching. We're, We're teaching through reading. Nevin will often explain and give you a little help to see where the Scripture reading that he is reading is going to fit in with the sermon that is getting ready to be preached so that you can be reading it, thinking of those things. And often in his prayers, he is making statements uh, that, are, that are teaching statements in that way. And so they verge on the border of authoritative teaching when they're done in this venue. And these prayers are often, these prayers and readings are often, if not prepared in advance, they are thought through and they serve p- practically as a form of teaching. Even just in their structure, they, for, they serve as a basis to teach us how to pray. The one leading through his prayer is teaching who God is and applying that to the corporate gatherings. And so though I don't think it would probably be a sin, I don't think it would be a sin for a woman to lead one of those prayers or do these scripture readings, remembering 1 Corinthians 11, because of the heavy heavy teaching emphasis in our prayers and readings, it makes us a bit cautious because we want to be faithful to what God's word says. But in general, and in almost any other uh, venue, both men and women will pray in the body as we experience so richly in other ways in the life of the church. Although it would not be inappropriate for us as a church and for people to see that, in general, men take the leadership in praying and doing these things in the life of the church. Not because, it's not, not because it would be a sin for women to do it, but because, again, the dispositions and the way that God has made us to lean into those things is to admit that, a lot of times, men are going to be leading in these spiritual areas. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 also speak of men and women who prophesy in the church. What do we do with that? Well, a lot could be said here on what Paul has in mind— but just to basically summarize, Paul is not speaking here of one of the types of prophecy. There are really two major categories of prophecy. They are foretelling and forthtelling. Uh, and what Paul, I don't think, means here is foretelling. And that is predicting the future. That is what we think of most often with like Old Testament prophets. But instead what he's referring to is actually the more common form of prophecy. Oh, you might call it little p prophecy or small p prophecy, and that is forth telling. Not telling the future, not, but non-inspired speech that is calling scriptural truths to our minds. Uh, using the Bible and saying together, doesn't, doesn't the Bible say this? Or I'm wondering how this might apply in this situation. Or we ought to be careful, or, or brother, sister, you ought to be careful in this area because doesn't the Bible say this? It is bringing God's word to bear in the lives of people. Okay, and there, there's some debate on what all of prophecy involves and, and this. We don't have time to get into it. It's not the series' purpose. But one Corinthians fourteen three is very clear when it says that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, for their upbuild building up encouragement and consolation. And so in our context, this would include everything from a, a testimony that someone would give. Uh, in public or in a private conversation, when men and women share how God's work is done in their lives and how that might build up the body of Christ. It would include many of the edifying things that both men and women proclaim in Sunday school classes and in other discussions that we have, again, either more formally or informally, whether it's on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights at a 1, the things that are said. And if you, take these, if you take the prophetic in this way, contributions away from the women of the church, well, then we only hear about what God is doing in the lives of men. We only hear how God is influencing them. So it's valuable to have women who uh, share what God is doing in their lives. And I get to hear those stories a lot, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing. So prayer, praying, prophesying, uh, however you want to define prophesying, sharing, encouraging, admonishing one another with God's word in different venues. And again, non-authoritative. It's bringing scripture to bear, different than when someone stands up here. Uh, Pastors are called to be prophetic, we're called to call God's word, uh, bring it to mind and and bring it to bear, but we do so in an authoritative way for the gathered church. That's a very different thing than a woman sharing an opinion or an idea or uh, an encouraging thought or even an admonishing thought uh, to one another. Number three, exercising governance within the body of Christ, within the church. You know, As a church, we are elder-led. If you look at our documents, that's how we operate. We're we led by elders. We think that's the most biblical way to do it, a plurality of elders, not just one person making every decision, but uh, at least more than one elder who are coming together to seek the mind of Christ on decision-making and then, and then make those decisions. We think that's the way uh, that Paul has instructed the church to be governed. And yet, even in that, as a, as elders and as a church, we understand that there are there are texts like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 that point to the fact that the final authority over the church's affairs, and, and we even admit this in electing of elders, uh, but also in um, areas of discipline and doctrine and membership, that these kind of, the ultimate authority rests in the people of God and the church. Matthew 18 talks about beginning with one-to-one conversations and Areas of discipline when there's been sin against another member of the body of Christ. Well, you take to that person individually, you take a few more, you bring it to the leadership, and then eventually, before you get to the whole step of excommunication, you take it to the whole church. So the Bible recognizes that there is a place for the whole church to exercise authority together. And this includes men and women. Notice it doesn't say take it to the whole church, but just the men. Right? It says take it to the whole church. Now, in the first century, I'll admit it may have been the case that it was mainly men who were involved in those decision-makings, but I find it very interesting that God in his wisdom did not delineate that, but he said to the whole church, so that the whole church has a, has a voice and has things to say on discipline, on ultimate matters of, uh, of things, and we, and we exercise that in our, in our business meetings when we ask for the whole church to give their input on issues. And so this practically means that every member of our church whether they are men or women, are responsible for knowing the scriptures, for applying it to the life of the church, for helping to defend the church from error, for helping to exercise discipline in the church. Not on a day-to-day basis. That is given over to the elders. And, uh, and so, but also part of that is knowing that doctrine of, of who elders are and how they serve so that you can better uh, submit to uh, our leadership in as much as we follow what God's word instructs us to do so as elders. So we all have a part to play, even in the the government of our church life. Number four is just in serving, serving the body of Christ. There are only two scriptural offices in the church, that of elder and deacon, and as we'll talk about, we believe that the New Testament reserves these offices to men, but that doesn't mean that service within the church is limited to only those two leadership roles, as if deacons and elders are the only people who serve in the life of a church. 1 Timothy 3 that we read, beginning in verse 8, talks about how deacons should be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, tested first, serving as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. We saw all the qualifications for elders earlier in the chapter. And then we have in verse 11 the, the words, women likewise must be, and it has a little description there, for them. And the word women there, some the, the ESV translates it as uh, let deacons' wives, let their wives likewise be dignified, not slanderers. And so let, let's admit that there is, there is not complete agreement within the larger body of Christ, or whether this is speaking of the wives of deacons or whether it's speaking of a second, a third office, that of female deacons or deaconesses. And some churches have deaconesses. Um, we do not because our conviction is that what it's really speaking of here is the wives of deacons. And the reason is, just not to delve into this text uh, for a whole sermon, but uh, if you look at that section, the qualifications for deacons start at verse 8, and they go down to the end of verse 13. And in the middle, you have verse 11, which speaks of women or wives. So who are they, what are they describing? Well, notice the, the wives of elders are not mentioned. That's one of the reasons that some people think that this is a second or a third office because, well, the wives of elders aren't mentioned in verses uh, uh, you know, 1 to, to 7, and so they're mentioned here, so it must be a third office. Well, the difference is that an elder's wife is not going to be called upon in, the life of, in, in church life to participate and do some of the things that her husband is doing. right? A, a pastor who is preaching... His wife is not going to be called upon to preach. He's not. He doesn't, the, the wives of elders and pastors aren't meant, let me say meant to be called upon, to do the same things as their husbands. This is why I, really, I don't like you see churches that have pastors and they'll have the husband and wife name. Well, only, only the husband is the pastor. He, she's simply his wife. And she has no more um, responsibility before the church than any other woman in the church. There should be no more expected of her than any other woman of the church. Whatever gifts that God has given her, she is to use with freedom and with joy. But you shouldn't and, and we shouldn't expect any more of pastors or elders' wives than we do of any other regular member, female member of the life of the body of Christ. So unlike elders, deacons' wives, because what deacons are doing is serving the practical needs of the church, deacons' wives are often going to be called upon to assist their husbands in their very specific work especially if they need to meet with other women, if, if they're dealing with widows for the sake of, uh, for the, sake of uh, the reputation of the church and for the sake of, of uh, temptation and all the various different reasons. You know, a, a deacon's wife might go with him if he's gonna be, so he doesn't have to meet alone with a, a single woman or a widow or something like that. Deacon's wives might be called upon to help out when the deacon has to plan an event or something, do something practical because, you know, the church wants it to look good. <laughs> So, you know, so the deacon's wife is called on to help. So there's lots of areas where in service, a deacon's wife, it would be natural for her to accompany and help her husband in those areas. Whereas an elder's wife, that's probably not going to be the case. Notice also that if it's a separate, it seems to be included in the deacon's qualifications. Because if you notice verses eight to 10 speak of diaconal or deacon qualifications, verse 11 speaks of, these women, and the same basic you know, character qualities are mentioned, and then it goes back to, in verse 12, to deacons again. Let them be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well, and so forth. Well, it would be weird if we were talking about elders, deacons, deaconesses, and then a little bit more about deacons, right? If it was Why wouldn't Paul finish deacons and then talk about deaconesses? So it seems to be that that wives is actually the better translation here, that, uh, or the most clear, even though it's maybe not the most uh, accurate word-for-word translation. The word is just women, but it's often used as speaking of, of people's wives. That their qualifications are assumed under the qualifications for deacons. So all that being said, just because you don't have a particular office of elder or deacon, whether you're a man or a woman, even though those two are, are, are set apart for men, uh, all believers are called to serve. All believers are called to deacon. You're all deacons. You may not have the office of deacon, which is a set-apart office, but you're all to deacon because the word deacon simply means to serve. So all believers are called to serve, to use their gifts, again, for the building up of the body in practical ways. Unless we think that doing so is an insignificant role Remember that Jesus himself, in, in Romans 15, is called a deacon. It's called a servant of the church. So to deacon, to serve, is to follow in the steps of Jesus. And we praise God for the competent, qualified, godly men and women who serve in various capacities in the life of the church. Most in ways that many of you may not even realize are happening on a week-to-week basis. But we also thank God for giving gifts to his church of qualified men who can serve in leadership ca- capabilities as elders elders and deacons and often the role of deacons isn't to do all the ministry but again why their wives are included there it is to delegate and to find people who can help do those things so we're grateful that we have deacons and by the way this is why deacons sometimes don't do anything because there may not be anything specific to be done and so we have deacons who are ready and willing and able to serve in in just about any area that we need and yet on a day-to-day basis on a week-to-week basis there may not be very much that needs to be done in the life of a small church until something breaks, until there's a need to be met. And then we know who we can call to step into leadership. And then they can then delegate and find other people to help them do that. So everyone needs to serve. Use your gifts. And don't, by the way, don't worry about matching your gift up to one of the lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible. Those lists are just example lists. I don't think they're meant to be exhaustive. There are service gifts, there are leadership gifts, there are compassionate gifts, there's different gifts. Uh, find whatever the Lord is equipping you for, giving you passion about, and look for ways to serve in the life of the body. And sometimes the only way to find your spiritual gifts is really to start serving, because you will pretty quickly find the things you're not equipped for, right? You'll do it, and you'll go, not only did I hate that, I wasn't good at it, I was frustrated, it was actually, uh, you know, hurting my sanctification. <laughs> and, uh, but sometimes you need to stick through those things because of the need is there. But often you will find in service, you will find the areas where you're really gifted, where God is equipping you and calling you to serve. But you don't do that by just sitting back and hoping one day, you know, some spiritual gifts inventory from heaven is gonna come down and say, you know, you've been like a sort of pop-up ad in your brain that's gonna be, you have the gift of hospitality, so get at it, you know. Begin by being hospitable. Begin by doing these things. Begin by serving in different areas. Number five, that of teaching and leading. Again, it's clear that men are those called by God to teach the gathered congregation, and we'll talk about that, but it doesn't mean that women don't teach. Paul talks in Titus 2 about older women teaching what is good and training the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, busy at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. That the word of God may not be reviled. Teaching other women what the word of God says in their practical living. And Paul, notice, doesn't merely say model. He says that they should teach and instruct and train. It's true for single women. As Paul is talking to women who aren't just older in age, but those who are mature in the faith. And we have single and married women who lead in small groups, speak to other women in various um, functions, help out with counseling and these types of things. Exhortation, encouragement, teaching among Christians isn't based ultimately on your life experience, but it's based on scripture. I had a really great compliment last week from uh, Brian Hicks' dad. And he goes, I just love that I heard a great sermon on marriage from a single guy. And I said, well, I only have the Bible to go from. I can't give too much of personal experience because I don't have any. But what I can do is say, here's what the Bible says. And there is life experience. I've been around marriages, right? And uh, And... Men and women, there are generalities we can make. But the Bible is, is clear on things. And so all of us can be exhorting and teaching one another within the body of Christ, even if the teaching role, so in our formal teaching settings, in Sunday school classes that are in, in mixed gender and in the public Sunday morning gathering, um, we believe that those things are only uh, set apart for men to lead in those areas. And yet women have lots of opportunities and should look for opportunities to teach others. This includes number six, ministering to children, an area where both men and women can have a powerful ministry within the church. I'm I'm very glad. I think one of the improvements over the last maybe 60 years of church life is that men have become more involved in in children and youth ministries. That used to be kind of only women did those things. And thank God for those women, because there would have been a lot of children who didn't grow up knowing Christ. They would have not been exposed to the gospel, but for those wonderful Wonderful women. But I'm I'm excited to see that men are taking active roles involved in the life of the church in all areas, including children. Because for all kinds of bad reasons, our society often sees work with children as unglamorous and not worthwhile. But that is absolutely not true biblically. It's not true in our church. We need women and men who will not be satisfied with anything less than robust, safe, theologically rich, biblically grounded church ministry from cradle to the grave. Who feel the weight of teaching kids the love of Christ through word and example. Paul tells Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And he's not even referring to himself, and though Paul clearly taught Timothy a lot. But he says, How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul didn't know Timothy from infancy. So where did Timothy's theological education come from? Did he attend Bible college or seminary? No, he learned it from his mom and his grandma, right? One, one, uh, Two Timothy 1:5. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, Paul tells Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. So we thank God for the countless Loises and Eunices who serve in children's ministry here, and also for many men who serve in that ministry. And we praise God for the men who serve as well. Because providing for and protecting others physically and spiritually includes kids. So, if you're a, a man or a woman, maybe you don't like working with children. Well, we can help you. We can help with security or setup or tear down. There's lots of ways that you can be involved. The only way to get more comfortable, by the way, around kids is to be around them. And uh, they don't bite normally, um, some of them bite. That's right. But let's be involved in the life of the kids of the church. Number seven is miscellaneous, it's everything else. Because I didn't want to keep you here till Tuesday right? So many ministries we could mention, most of them not unique at all to men or women, but incumbent upon all believers. Many women have powerful ministries of encouragement and hospitality. I love the examples of single single and widowed uh, women who have been used of God mightily on the mission field, women like Lottie Moon, Amy Carmichael, Elizabeth Elliot. Ministering to the sick and elderly, counseling the hurting or confused, seeking out and welcoming visitors, discipling one another's in one to one relationships, ushering, helping with music, serving in clerical duties at the church. All these ministries in which men and women both can serve and play vital roles, which they can have a robust and fulfilling ministry in the church for the good of the body. Now, sadly, we tend only to ascribe honor to those things that are visible in public. So we think of those who preach and teach and get to stand up and platform or play and sing. But God's not like that. Didn't we read in 1 Corinthians 12 that the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable? Right? Don't believe me? Stub your little baby toe this afternoon and then tell me how indispensable it might be, though it seems like you don't need it. You know, you ever pull a muscle you didn't realize you had and then you, every time you move, you're like, oh, I didn't know I used that muscle when I did that. You don't recognize it until it's hurt. It's the same way within the body of Christ. Those parts of the body, Paul says, that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. So from there is no more honor in being a faithful pastor, preacher, than it is being a faithful Sunday school teacher or being a faithful Awana listener. If you're doing it, what God has called you to do, what he's equipped you to do, what he's provided an opportunity for you to do, and you do it faithfully, you do it joyfully, you seek to do it well, That is just as honorable. It is is an honorable thing to want to be a pastor or an elder for a young man or uh, or even an older man who becomes equipped for that. But it it has no more honor before God in the sense of, if God didn't call you to be an elder, you shouldn't be an elder. You do what God has called you to do. The Corinthian church struggled with this problem, elevating certain ministries. In their case, it was in the area of tongues, and they were elevating those who who were speaking or interpreting tongues. And Paul corrects them and says, no, we need each member of the body. Because if we don't have ears, we can't hear. If we don't have eyes, we can't see. And so neither is more important or less important than the other. Well, let me close with this. And this will kind of, will piggyback from here in two weeks onto the nature of elder leadership. The obvious question is, if men and women can both serve in such vital ways, why... Maybe we don't even need convinced that God does limit the role of elder to, to men. Maybe you're already convinced of that. The question is, why would God reserve teaching and eldering, shepherding, pastoring as an office that is exclusive to men? Why would God do that? Well, again, we're going to get to 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. and We're going to talk about those passages more in depth. But I just want to close by looking at what elders' job descriptions essentially are. And I think we'll begin to see why in God's wisdom he has called men to this position alone. Well, 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, where Paul gives the qualifications for being an elder or bishop or pastor, those are interchangeable terms in the New Testament. And what are we told there? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be to the office of overseer, that word overseer becomes bishop, episkopos, um, but it just it's the same as a pastor, there's no difference. He desires a noble task. So it's a good thing to aspire to this. Therefore... An overseer must be above approach, the husband of one wife, and so forth and so on. And Paul goes on to say that they can't be recent converts, they must be able to teach the word of God. Paul simply calls them also to basic examples of godliness, like humility, honorable living, and hospitality, all virtues that all men and women should, should pursue, but elders are supposed to be examples of those. But consider the things that God calls, elders, uh, calls them to specifically do, the job description, if you will. I've mentioned, I think, four things in your notes. Elders are to provide for the church through biblical teaching. Paul says in Titus 1 that an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction, or you might say provide instruction in sound doctrine. Timothy's calling in 1 Timothy 4 was to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Ephesians 4 says that Jesus gives shepherd teachers to his church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So elders have this role to provide for the church through biblical teaching. Secondly, elders are called to protect the church from falsehood and error and wolves. The time is coming, Paul tells Timothy in his second letter to him, chapter 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What is an elder to do about that? Well, Paul tells Timothy, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. He tells Titus in the first chapter to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So one of the areas that elders are called to do is to protect the church from falsehood. Third, elders are to lead the church by biblical example. 1 Peter 5 says, pastors should not be domineering over those under their charge, but examples to the flock. Hebrews 13 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So they are, leader, they are leadership examples. And fourth, elders have a responsibility. They really bear responsibility before God for the well-being of the church. James 3 says that teachers would receive stricter judgment. Hebrews 13 says that we submit to the elders of the church because they keep watch over our souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, notice something. A lot of you have already seen it. What's the pattern here? Look at the things that elders are called to do. Provide, protect, lead, bear responsibility. Which pattern, going all the way back to Genesis, do those elements look more like? The the general pattern for biblical masculinity or the biblical pattern for biblical femininity? It's essentially our summary for biblical masculinity, isn't it? Men are designed by God to provide for others, to protect them, as was Adam's job description in the Garden of Eden. Men are called to lead their families spiritually, as we've seen in Ephesians 5, where a husband is supposed to lay down his life in order to, for his wife and children to grow in holiness. Men bear responsibility before God for how they lead their household. As we remember from the account of the fall in Genesis 3, where even though Eve sins first, it is Adam that God holds accountable. So there's a biblical picture of male leadership that's masculine at its core that flows into the life of the church. It's not a worldly machismo. It's not uh, the kind of self-centered strength that uses others for their pleasure or gain, but it is a compassionate disposition to serve and to shelter the bride of Christ. It is humble and loving towards God's sheep, and yet sturdy and strong against wolves that would seek to devour them. And so pray that God would continue to give our church and the church at large men who will serve as elders in this way. And if you're a man and you don't aspire to have that elder-like character, even if you don't aspire to an actual office of elder, you should ask yourself why you don't aspire to have this type of character. Single women, if you desire marriage, you should pray for a husband like this. Others may be richer or better looking, but no one will cause you to flourish and blossom as a man in your life who would love Jesus and love you like this. And at the end of the day, elder leadership by men, robust, congregational ministry by men and women alike are not in conflict they are mutually beneficial because as the church we need biblically masculine elders that God has given us to lead and to teach us and to serve us in leadership as deacons and yet elders and deacons are not themselves the church if they were uh, Nevin and I and the deacons would just be sitting around in a circle looking at each other we as the church need the body of Christ a wonderfully diverse body of Christ made up of lots of different gifts, and we praise God for the faithful men and women who serve this body for the common good and ultimately for the glory of his name. Let's thank him for that right now. Father, we thank you for your word and the instruction it gives in this area. Continue to help us to think deeply and, uh, and uh, intelligently about these things because we want to honor you and what your word has taught us uh, in the way we organize ourselves in families but also in the church. So may you uh, apply your word to our hearts, give us much to think about about how we serve and how we help serve and how we equip others to serve and how we support the leadership that you have placed in church, trusting in your sovereignty, trusting in your in your ways and your wisdom, even if it's not our own. And uh, may we do so in a way that would ultimately bring you glory and may we continue to meet together as the body of Christ for the fame of your name, for the glory of your name, and so we might continue to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world around us. So we ask you for your help in this as we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.